You are listening to audio from Riverside Church. If you would like to check out more resources, please visit riverside.church. It's good to see everybody. Uh, I'm Adam. If we haven't met before, it's good to to see you. Uh, Pastor Andrew is in the air on his way back from India. Decided I'd give a real clunker sermon today, so we'd all be real excited when he comes back next week. So... (laughs) Uh, this is a kind of a weird weather week, wasn't it? I thought it, I thought it was like the the warm to cold, lots of sun to then snow, fluctuating all over the place. Uh, on the positive, like way more sun than we normally get this time of year. Yeah, I I have a new colleague at work who just moved from Kansas, and everybody's been talking to her about permacloud, but there hasn't been any permacloud, so she thinks that we're lying to her. It's just this beautiful, wonderful place to live all year round. So I'm, whatever it is, I'm totally here for it. I am here for it. One thing I'm thinking, though, that I am not here for is that when the, that rise and fall in the temperature, what that does to the actual ground that you walk on, it just turns it all into the, like, gross muck. You know what I mean? Like um, this weird limbo time where it's the, the ground is moving from totally frozen and then in fits and starts, like comes out of the deep freeze. And so for February and half of March, we live in like goop. Um, one day, you know, in, in, in a few weeks, the, the, the ground is going to like soften so that tulips can come up. And the grass is going to get green, right? All will be well, but we're not there yet. This is just the gross transition from frozen to fertile, uh, and it's just a bunch of unwanted yuck everywhere. And I've been thinking about that because you, you can't get to the green without the yuck. And that's my operating metaphor for the season of Lent. Because I, if I'm being honest, it may be true for you too, but it, this is true for me, that my heart can over time grow cold towards spiritual things, that my spirit can sort of freeze to the things of God. And over time, it just gets a little frosty. It's not even like an intentional antipathy towards God. It's just this this kind of a cycle, sort of, where my spiritual sensitivity wanes. Um, I don't hear from God as crisply, or I don't respond as quickly. I don't kindle a desire to know and be like Jesus. It's not sinister. It's just cold. And Lent, I think, coincidentally, is the season where, it's always in the season where creation is warming itself towards the possibility of new life. And Lent is that same kind of season, where the hope is by intentional practices like prayer and repentance, our hearts can thaw towards God. If our, if our, if our spirit is cold, then our spirit can warm towards the Lord. If it's frozen, Lent begins to defrost us. Towards the end of Easter, for the purpose of celebration and participation in new life with God, Lent moves us towards those days of bright sun and celebration where flowers start to bloom in and around the same time that we create space for resurrection celebration. That's the great promise of Lent, I think, is where we all might, as John Wesley once said, feel our hearts strangely warm. And that's why we lean in as a church into this season. It's why we embrace this as a season, though, 
of coming face to face with our yuck. Coming face to face with our sin. Because the same way the thawing earth allows mud to surface, so too our thawing hearts will inevitably surface things that have been frozen below. Lent's a season of allowing the once frozen, now muck of our lives to come into view, to come into view before God, because that muck is the raw material that God uses to bring new life in and through our very being. In a few weeks, we get to celebrate the sin-conquering, life-giving resurrection of Easter, that cosmic celebration of Jesus' once and final defeat of the powers of sin and death. And you and I are people that get to live that out in small and personal ways. So in this season, we remember that Jesus is working in the mucky, dank pastures of our hearts, filling and planting seeds of new life that we trust will one day bloom and grow. Trusting Jesus to like roam around there and do good work is not for the faint of heart. It can be daunting. But as we gather together here in these weeks of Lent, I want to invite all of us to lean into the muck, trusting that there are new life possibilities that Jesus promises. So keep leaning in. Don't give up. Now, when John wrote this letter that Karen just read for us here, there was no such thing as Lent, of course. And the ancient Middle East didn't have like a deep freeze winter like we have here in Indiana didn't produce six weeks of earth goop like we have to walk through. But our text today starts in a place that feels familiar to us. It's in a different place in time, but I believe that if we think about it, it's an experience that we've all probably encountered. So I do think that it lands in our lives in a really important way. And if I had to sum it up, I would sum it up the same way that I just summed up the season of Lent. And that is that John is writing to the people Keep leaning in, don't give up. Keep leaning in, don't give up. Because being a Christian in the first century was no walk in the park. There were any number of things that would have made following Jesus faithfully and fully very difficult. So just to set the context to remind us of what it would have been like when John was writing this letter, there would have been a host of pressures from the larger religious community. Remember, that the vast majority of early Christians would have been converting from an entirely different religious system, or they would would have been choosing to follow Jesus as Messiah in a larger Jewish context that didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. So everyone around them is seeing the world differently than them. That would have meant that there were probably, in all likelihood, any number of family or cultural pressures to cave because you've converted out of the systems that you grew up in to tamp down or to abandon your faith that would have made every family and like communal interaction awkward yeah like whatever their equivalent of a family thanksgiving table was would have been hard those religious and cultural dynamics They wove their way into political life, just the same way that it happens today. It would have been politically controversial to take the way of Jesus seriously. It would have been much easier to have the faith that everybody else had 
or to have the kind of faith that blends into the dominant political voices, to have the kind of faith that politicians use to serve their own ends, which we don't know anything about that, do we? In addition to that, then, there would have also been what I think we could call like the counter-narratives, the other stories, the other competing stories, the false gods, the false idols, the false movements, all the people in all of the different groups claiming to represent the true way, but were not true. And it didn't, it's not just a religious notion, right? Like there would have been all of these different religious sects trying to get people to like come and participate in it, but it's not just these religious groups. Throughout the entirety of human history, even all the way back to the like opening story of Adam and Eve, the world has always had what N.T. Wright calls the great lie. The great lie began with the first temptation in the garden when the enemy promised Adam and Eve that if they ate, that if they ate the fruit, they would be like God. From that moment on, there have always been ideas that promise humanity something. There have always been ideas that promise humanity something that only God gives. If that's satisfaction or happiness or fulfillment or salvation or eternal life, whatever it is that humans crave at a deep and fundamental level, there is always some snake oil salesman promising the cure for what ails you. And that is the context that John is writing to the people. That's what he's writing about here in this part of the letter. In the text, actually, that we will look at next week, if you wanted to read ahead, John gets more explicit about this. He's actually telling people that there are all kinds of antichrists. That's not just like a, like a end times scary thing, antichrist. The idea of an anti-messiah is the person going about saying that they are the one worth following, right? Any idea, any promise that promises to save is anti the Messiah. You understand? That's why when John says, he'll say there's an antichrist, but there's so many antichrists out there. That's the point that John is trying to make. There are all of these groups promising satisfaction or salvation in ways other than the true way of Jesus. And the point of this whole passage is that in a world full of reasons to give up or compromise your faith or go a lesser way, don't give up. Keep leaning in. So I want to look at it more specifically. John says, I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. So it's a little repetitive, right? A little repetitive. But John actually is quite a bit different than Paul. So like Paul's letters are... are very rarely repetitive. They're like one big stream of consciousness thought. John is like circling the same idea over and over and over again. So when you read John, you have to read it a little bit differently. When you get to a spot where you see these repetitive ideas, 
You want to sit in it because John is clearly trying to get a single idea across, something that John thinks is really important. So let's look at it. I kind of broke it down here. I want to look at the different audiences that John is speaking to. So he first starts by talking to the children. He says, you know, I'm I'm speaking to you because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name because you know the father. John is using this term children to refer to everyone. Not little kids, he's saying everyone. He has everyone in mind similar to referring to folks as children of God, which is what he's going to do later in the letter. This is an identity marker, one that bookends this entire section. So from last week's passage, John says, I'm writing because I don't want you to sin. But if you do sin, we have the assurance of forgiveness in Christ. Then here in our text, John says, so don't forget that our sins have been forgiven. Don't forget that you are a child of God. And that means that God is our Father. There is a deep and meaningful reality to remember that we are God's children, forgiven of sin because of Jesus. And because that is always the case, that is always what is true, we can keep leaning in. So then John says, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I just want to make a real quick point here. I think this is a really interesting moment in this letter because John does something that's really rather unique in the New Testament and that he parses out his audience and names specific reasons that he has in mind for why it is he's addressing them and they're all just slightly different. What I love about this is that it's proof positive about how scripture meets us where we are. This is how God works. God speaks to us through his word and while God's word has ultimate meaning God, in ways that we don't fully understand, still speaks to each of us in the specifics of our experience. And so here John is saying, listen, the reason I'm writing to each of you is just a little bit different. John is a real pastor because he's thinking about the particular needs of the people who will be hearing this. And so here he addresses fathers. Now, in our ears, in 2024, it's perfectly reasonable to extend that to everyone who is historically enhanced. John is writing to the old folks. He's writing to the elders. He's writing to anyone who is in the back half of of their journey, okay? It's clear who he's writing to, yeah? Okay. And to these folks, he says, You know him who is from the beginning. Now, why would he say that? This is a question that I actually spent a lot of time pondering on in preparation for today. It's it's the one that like wormed its way into my head the most. And I've landed on a hypothesis. To tell the old folks that they know God, the one God who is from the beginning, is really another way of saying that you know the God who stands the test of time. You know the God who stands the test of time. You've been at this following Jesus thing longer than the young people who he's going to talk to in just a minute. And that means, just by basic facts, that you have had to deal with more trial. You've had to deal with more struggle. 
you've had to deal with more label, labor than the rest. Just by virtue of your age, over time, living the way of Jesus in a world of the great lie has got to wear you down. It actually made me think of the story of Noah. So imagine with me, right? Noah's building the ark with no rain in sight. Probably getting a little weary of the abuse and the criticism and the ridicule that he's taking. He's out there every day slinging his hammer, hearing the jeering of his former friends and neighbors, saying he's wasting his life on a lie. Wondering, maybe, between slings of the hammer, if maybe they're right. I think John has the same kind of thing in mind. He's thinking about the people that have to live and have lived for many years in a world full of counter stories to the gospel. Here are this community of people who for years have been slinging the hammer of faith, trying to be faithful to Jesus amidst the jeers of those telling them that they have given their lives over to a lie. You are wasting your life. It's a group of people, the historically enhanced. It's a group of people for whom it would be totally reasonable to wonder if they, in the quiet moments of their life, wondered if maybe everyone around them was right. Was this worth it? And John said, listen, the God you know stands the test of time. This is no passing fad, no flavor of the month, no trendy form of religion. This is the true God, the one who has been from the beginning. And because he stands the test of time, so can you. Your labor has not been in vain. Keep leaning in. Don't give up. If you fit that description, John's encouragement is the same for you. It is not for naught. Keep leaning in. So then John turns his attention to the young people with a different message. My knees hurt when I wake up in the morning now, and so I don't fit this description as well as I used to. He turns his attention to the young people with a different message. The repeated idea is that you have overcome the evil one. He says, you are strong. God's word is alive in you, and you have overcome the evil one. You've overcome. You are victorious. So I am at the point in life where more than likely I'm walking the very fine line between the first half and second half of life. I read a book once that basically said that you transition to the second half of life when your life stops being an attempt, an attempt to live forever. And I, I, that stuck with me. Um, because I do think that there is something about the first half of life that is an exploration of what's possible, you know? It's meant to sort of see the sky as the limit. When you're young, boundaries are meant to be pushed. Life is often seen as something to be conquered. It's also, regrettably, the season of life when everyone seems to be focusing on separating out winners from losers, you know? Now, I don't know for sure that this is what John is thinking about when he's writing it, but it is me thinking about, you know, at the, at the end of my first half of life, it is me thinking about it, asking myself, if I'm the person he's writing to, why does he say, 
You've overcome. To be in Christ is an ultimate victory. It is an ultimate victory. Following Jesus faithfully is the only way to move well through life. It is the truest form of life, the only way to live forever. And it is also true that when you choose the way of Jesus as a young person, you have to give up a lot of the other stuff that everyone else is chasing after. You have to give up a lot of the things that everyone chases after when the world is meant to be conquered. There are scores of ways that following Jesus feels like losing in a world where everything good of the kingdom of God feels upside down. And so John is saying, this actually is what victory looks like. This is what a life worth living looks like. You young people, full of fight and pluck, wide-eyed with the possibilities of everything the world has to offer, keep leaning in. Don't give up, because this is what it's about. John wants to really drive this point home to everyone. So he continues here in verses 15 through 17. I'm going to read it again. He says, don't love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. He's speaking to this community of people, and he said, you're, you know, you're all following Jesus in a world full of lies. Don't give up on the way of Jesus and give in to chasing the things of the world. And I really want to tease this out because this is one of these passages where over time a fair number of Christian folks read verses like this and have used them as reasons to withdraw from the world entirely or to fail to recognize that John is not saying that the world cannot be a joyful place to live. It's so important to remember when we read a passage like this that at the same time, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world offers us so many good gifts from God, our Father, who delights to delight his children. There are scores of good gifts in creation and so many good gifts in the creative possibilities that come from human beings who bear the image of God in the world. This is our Father's world. He shines in all that's fair. So John is not saying the world cannot be delighted in. He's saying something very specific. And thankfully, he tells us what it means to love the world. He's saying don't love the world. This is what loving the world means. It's equal to one or more of three things. Lust of the flesh lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. This is what loving the world means. And these are the things, John says, we can't follow Jesus and do these things. But these are the things that the world deems worth our time and attention. 
These, is it still up there? Yes, okay, I keep pointing back there like it's up there. These are the great lies. These are the great lies. The same lies that have existed throughout all of humanity. Real quick, moving through them. Lust of the flesh is when we give ourselves over to unrestrained consumption. This can be any kind of consumption that drives us to take and take and take in the hopes of satisfaction. Now, a word like lust makes us probably think immediately of sex, and it should, because it certainly counts as lust of the flesh. But lust of the flesh is any kind of consumptive addiction that drives and controls us. So it could be food. It could be drink. It might just be buying and buying and buying. It is consumerism all the way. It's anything that we allow to convince us that if we just had more of this, that we would be satisfied. Lust of the flesh is when we say, I take this. I take this. Lust of the eyes is related because these are the desires that control us. It's not just what we take for ourselves. Lust of the eyes extends to anything and everything we want for ourselves that's either outside of God's intentions, anything that we want that makes us doubt God's goodness, or wanting more than God gives or wanting things that God doesn't give. Right? So those, it's all of these things. We think that there are things that God hasn't given us that if we had them, we would be satisfied. This is, frankly, the great lie of the American dream. I read a stat recently that said there was a survey given out to folks at various income levels. And the question that they posed to them is, how much more would you need your income to be to be secure and satisfied? And the results were interesting because no matter the income level, no matter the income level, the answer was always double. So if you made $25,000 a year, you said, if I made $50,000, I'd be safe and secure. But if you made $250,000 a year, you'd need $500,000. If you made $2.5 million, your answer was, I needed $5 million. The data was pretty stunning in that regard. But that's the lust of the eyes, friends to think that I need more in order to be safe and secure and satisfied. And pride of life. All right, simply stated, this is the drive for glory. It's the pursuit of immortality, the quest for fame, the unvirtuous fruit that the first half of life can produce in us if it's left unchecked. Way back in the first century when John wrote this, Caesar, the Roman emperor, would have put his name and image and likeness up everywhere to the farthest corners of the empire, believing that his name would live forever. And we have high school kids today signing name, image, and likeness deals in pursuit of the same kind of fame. They want their names to live forever. We obsess over celebrity, and we are worried that we are not making our mark. Now, at the risk of sounding like an old buddy-duddy, I, I want to I plumb this a little bit more, because I, I really get this one. 
I mean, I think all three of them, like, if you know, they all probably apply to all of us. Like, I see myself in, in all three of these, but I get this one. I live this desire. I want to leave a mark on the world. I want my name to be remembered. I like seeing my name on the spine of books on my shelf. And we live in a world that is obsessed with arguments over who is the GOAT. For the historically enhanced folks, that means greatest of all time. We live in a world full of people trying to get their names down in the history books. But for all that glory chasing, the place where our names will live the longest is on our gravestones. Longer than anyone alive will know or speak it. That's the pride of life. And those things are what it means to love the world. Unrestrained consumption, unchecked desire, and the pursuit of glory. This is the foundation of the great lie the enemy told Adam and Eve. If you consume this apple, lust of the flesh, you get everything you desire, lust of the eyes, and you will be like God. If the enemy can get you to believe those lies, then you will fall away. Your heart will get cold towards God. To the extent that these things are present in our lives, we are in need of the reminder to keep leaning in. Do not give up. Because the world and its desires will pass away, friends. But to do the will of God is to live there. Whoever does the will of God lives forever. And the person that that is most true of is, of course, Jesus. Jesus, who was tempted by the enemy the same way that Adam and Eve was tempted. They were, he was tempted to believe the great lies that he was entitled to his wants to his desires, to pursue his own glory. That's what the wilderness temptation was. And Jesus, facing those temptations, chose a different way. Jesus chose the way of the Father to do the will of the Father, and in so doing, conquers death and makes a way for all of us to be daughters and sons of God. That is this great reminder that John begins the passage with. Children, your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. So we get to come to this table to remember and mark the story of the one who chose the will of the Father over his own fleshly desires. Jesus made it pretty clear he, he was open to another option and yet chose the way. So when we come to the table, we, we remember that story, but we also put ourselves in that story, right? When we come and we take the bread and we eat it, and we take the cup and we drink it, we now start to embody that story ourselves, to say the same way that Jesus does the will of the Father, we too do the will of the Father, knowing that we have this great and sure hope 
that we will live forever with God. Amen? Communion servers, if you come forward, the band can come back up. I want us to take just a few moments here of reflection. The scriptures talk about uh, opening ourselves up to God, that we would invite God to see if there are offensive ways in us. See if there are offensive ways and to lead us into everlasting life. Here's a text that puts it in stark terms that we've looked at this morning. We can love the world or we can do the will of the Father. God, we want to come uh, to this table having examined our own lives and inviting you to examine us. That you would see and help us see the ways in which our love for you might be overshadowed by our love for the world in these specific ways. And so, God, if there is unchecked consumption and unrestrained desire and the pursuit of glory in and through our lives, God, we pray that you would root it out. Root it out so that we do not turn cold towards you. That you would warm our hearts towards the things of the kingdom of God, that we would do your will in the world. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to Riverside Church. For more resources, visit riverside.church.